This is a kick in the grass with Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair on the Sportsnet Radio Network. The end of 2020 is upon us, and we take a look back at the year that was in the world of football. It's Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair with a kick in the grass here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. And it will be our first year-end roundtable. Joining us for that, Manuel Veth of Transfer Markets and Joshua Cloak of The Athletic. Uh, Josh, thanks for doing this. How are you? Well, how are you, Reach? Jeff? Very good. Very good. Manuel, how about yourself? Yeah, doing pretty good. How about you guys? Doing well. And uh, Jeff, you're uh, still reeling from another nil-nil draw by uh, by Manchester United, I assume. Oh, yeah. Reeling is the right word. <laughs> do, do I? Do you guys think any any less of me because I, I left I left just before half and went out to get a Christmas tree? <laughs> like, seriously, Not at all. Man, the first horrible. half was actually the better half. Oh, God, it was horrible, though. It was pathetic. It was yeah. pathetic. Not not great. Uh, much like uh, Manchester United seasons, a lot of a uh, lot of ups and downs. Um, but twenty twenty, it would be uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't start with uh, the year of Alfonso Davies. Uh, certainly, from a Canadian perspective, and even around world football, one of the biggest stars uh, of twenty twenty for sure. Uh, it really all started with the the match against Chelsea, and then it really took off from there. And lots of trophies, even individual honors uh, this past week, uh, named alongside Levant, Laurent Duvernay-Tardif as the top Canadian athlete winning the Lou Marsh, finished as a finalist for the Golden Boy. Um, Jeff, we'll start with you. How did we get here with Davies? Well, I think we've talked about this a little bit. I, I, to me, it's a classic example of what happens when you have a little bit of luck in terms of, if you want to call it luck, in terms of Alfonso Davies deciding at a young age that he wanted to play soccer instead of basketball or some other sport. And then really, I, I think all credit to him and his advisors for making smart decisions as they went on. And could you have picked a better league for Alfonso Davies to sort of to break into the big time with than the Bundesliga? I, I don't think so. Uh, you know, a league that welcomes young players, a league that certainly has no, you know, doesn't have any predisposition against breaking in young North American players. And then to, and this would be, to me, would be the ultimate sort of spin of good luck for him, having Hansi Flick take over. It, it just seems as if everything's fallen into place for this guy. And, and at such a young age, like very seldom do you see everything work out for a kid and he's just turned 20. So I, I think it's a lot of, just smart decision making and a little bit of luck too. Manuel, yeah, I, I echo pretty much everything that Jeff has said. I think that you know going to Bayern and going to Bayern is a big step. You know, it's one of the biggest teams in the world probably right now, the best best club in the world, right? And to go there and make that decision at the time, I thought, okay, well, that's a big step, but. Um, Jeff is quite right. The Bundesliga is a league where young players get to go and play. And the Bundesliga doesn't have that predisposition that some of the other leagues, although I think it's changing around Europe a little bit, towards North America, right? And products coming out of North America. It's, it's a league that very much likes to sign players from this continent and bring them over and integrate them. And I think that was that was that worked out really well for him. But you know what? He also took that opportunity. The opportunity was given to him and he made the most out of a position that I still don't think is his best. Um, you know, this is something that's going to probably be a constant debate, but he took that opportunity, made the most out of this position, made the most out of the fact that Bayern basically said, well, we know this is not your position, but um, if you play this position, we can reinvent ourselves and play a completely different style of football. And he took this opportunity and ran with it, literally, <laughs> and, you know, conquered all of Europe. And I think that uh, Davis's year is unparalleled uh, in terms of what we've ever seen from a Canadian soccer player in Europe. Josh, it's um, you know one thing that I've I've noticed uh, over the last couple of weeks is we've been talking a lot about and looking back on on Davies' season. Um, you know the idea that he got to play at Bayern Munich, and there's other stars there, and he was just a a, a product of what was 
is, you know, one of the greatest club seasons we've ever seen. Uh, but that really leaves out the fact that um, Bayern didn't go on that run or didn't start going on that run until Davies became a permanent fixture as their left back. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we talk a lot about Davies throughout this year. And I was thinking back to the last um, Bayern game I went to. I was there in September of 2019 and he scored. And, and I was fortunate enough to, to go to the press conference ask, after and I asked Nico Kovac about Alfonso. You know, it's it's a it's a goal for a young player. It's topical. And, you know, one of the first things out of his mouth was, you know, he'll be a good footballer for 15 years. So he was very much, you know, talking about Alfonso Davies as the future Right. But I think what this year proved with that coaching change that Jeff mentioned, you know, moving to Hansi Flick, this this proved that, you know, you can trust a young player now and you don't kind of have to worry about it. Because I think if, if we watch Alfonso Davies, he plays with just such freedom. He's such a liberated player on the pitch and, and he doesn't necessarily overthink things and he can be kind of we can talk about him sometimes as not maybe having the kind of tactical awareness that that players older than him have but I think that ability to just just play and and it sounds hokey but just kind of play with his heart and play with the freedom that that he's been given that allowed Byron to just play with such you know so much more pace and movement right he was so dangerous on his overlapping runs on the left and, and Byron became such a dangerous club because they played with that high press they played with that intensity and you know Alfonso Davies was a fixture in Hansi Flick's lineups. And, and we saw that again on the weekend, right? He just comes back from injury. He gets the start. You know, they don't want to ease him back in. They want to play him right away. Um, so, yeah, again, when we think about Alfonso Davies here, it's not just a matter of, oh, he was on a, a team and, and he was part of it. He was a driving force. And I, I think they probably would have won anyway. There's just so much talent on this team. But you can't talk about this Bayern club in 2020 without talking about the improvements that, that Davies brought to the squad. Is his ceiling limited uh, as as a left back, um, or, or is it just perfect the way that it is? You know, he's played so well in that position; he's made it his own. Josh, you just uh, eloquently put it as as how you know he has kind of reinvented it and he's become so dynamic, even from that defensive position. Um, Jeff, is are, are we ever going to see Davies at club level for Bayern be a forward, you think? I mean, I think a lot will depend on the moves Bayern ultimate, ultimately makes around him. Um, you know, I think he's got, he's got, he certainly, like, God, he's only 20. It's not as if, it's not as if his, his speed or his quickness should diminish anytime soon. So I would think if Bayern wants to, they could, they could leave him there, but yeah, I don't know. I think back to something John Herdman said when we talked to him uh, over the summer about the position of left back. And he thinks that it's going to be a much more influential position in the game than a lot of people realize. That's, that's sort of the similar thing to what Alexi Lala said as well. And I, I think for now you leave him where he is. But, you know, they do have Lucas Hernandez. They, they've, they've got some players that are getting up there in age. So I think a lot will depend on, on what they do around him. But certainly right now, I, you know, why, why fool with it? Josh, it's, um, it's a position. I, I guess we've seen Jurgen Klopp, uh, kind of change it as well a little bit with the way he uses Andy Robertson and Timothy, uh, Alexander Arnold, but for, for Davies at, at left back, um, you know, is that something that makes sense for, for John Herdman, and, and Canada, are we going to see something different? No, I don't think it makes sense for John Herdman. And, and anybody that has, you know, followed me even remotely closely on Twitter knows how I feel about, you know, Davies and where he should play for Canada. At Bayern, left back, of course, because look at some of the wingers that they have in their squad. These are literally some of the most potent wingers in the world. And Davies doesn't have that that kind of tactical prowess that I mentioned before to to attack, you know, to, to play in the attacking third just yet, but he has enough speed that that makes him, you know, a dangerous player on those overlapping runs at left back. Fine. But if we're talking about games at CONCACAF, in a tournament, I'm of the belief that tournaments are won by game breakers. You need to have mm -hmm. one or two players that can just blow a game 
wide open when when one game can make such a difference. And if we look at if Canada does somehow go deep in this World Cup qualifying, they're going to need a player that can just freeze opposition defenders, right? And and that's what we've seen Davies can do. We saw him against Barcelona. I don't think John Herdman has any choice but to play him, you know, on the left wing and and but, you know, to let him just kind of roam freely because of that confidence that he's gained playing at Bayern and he has the ability to have studied from again those those really dangerous wingers. He's told me personally that he's watched Kingsley Coman really closely and again, this is a player that, you know, won a Champions League. This you know scored in a Champions League final. That kind of wherewithal is is not common within CONCACAF. So John Herdman, just to me, he has to unleash him. And I get that like the modern left back can be an attacking player, but you're also stretching him kind of thin in, in that regard. And to me, just just don't, you know, take the reins off him. Let him go. You know, maybe a year, two years ago, we're having a different conversation, but this is a Champions League winner. And to me, he's earned the right, honestly, to to kind of play wherever he wants too. don't you think? I would say so. You know, I'm trying to think of other examples um, of a player that plays a, a totally different position for his club team than he than he would uh, for his his national team. But this well, is David Alaba is one. Sorry to interrupt. Like David yeah, Alaba is yeah. one. Right. David Alaba is one that, that plays in the midfield for Austria. And, and again, this is a, a, just to, to harken back to it. This is something that's really important that Davies has is he's been able to study from players. He's talked as well about how much he's learned. And, and if you watch Bayern games and you watched Alaba and Davies playing together, you would literally hear the instructions. David Alaba is shouting at him, you know, telling him when to press, when to attack when not to. This is incredible experience that I think John Herdman has, and he can't really, you know, I, I, I understand that there's a lot of attacking talent, probably more and better and diverse attacking talent that Canada has probably ever had in the men's national team, but that only gets bolsters if you allow Davies to play up front. And, and it's, uh, as you mentioned, you know, it's a star player like Davies that can really take a, a Canadian national team over the top. It's something we've needed uh, for years. We already saw him win a golden boot uh, at, at the Gold Cup. Um, but, Manuel, this is, you know, something that Davies is is going to learn a little bit more now. Uh, now that his profile has grown, I mean, people are going to be looking to him to show Canada the way for international success. I love this discussion about where he's going to play for Canada or for Bayern because, I, you know, it's so different, isn't it? It's it's so different playing for Bayern Munich and playing in that left-back role and playing in that attacking role for Bayern as a left-back because, let's be honest here, this is a team that has 60 to 70% possession every single game and um, can can really afford overloading those flanks much more than, than most teams, including Canada. And yeah, you're quite right. I mean, his profile is... Is, is massive now. He's the most valuable players, a player in CONCACAF. He is the, probably the most recognizable player in CONCACAF now. And uh, teams, are going to, teams are going to focus on him. Um, other teams are going to say, look, this, if, he, if he shut down Davies then, um, and the way he plays for Bayern, then, then we have a good chance of shutting down this entire Canada side. And I think this is something that when you, when you are John Hurtman and you are fielding your team, this is something that has to be in the back of your mind. How do you utilize Davies in a way that is most effective for you as a as a country, right? In in big tournaments, how do you get the Davies impact onto the field? How do you get the horsepower on the field? And um, I like the example of David Alaba because he plays a very different role with mixed with mixed success for Austria. And I think we have to maybe for Canada look at Al Alfonso Davies as well and say like maybe a completely different role for him playing for Canada is something that has to be looked at, right? I mean, um, Dan, we were at Whitecaps games where Davies even played as a number 10, for example, yeah. right? And I think that is that is something that if you were the coach and you put together a lineup and there's more and more talent coming um, into Canada's lineup and, the, you know, this is this is a luxury problem that this, this country never had with all these players available now. But you have to be have to try to get the best out of all these players and ensure that, you know, Davies can lead this this team to success. And I think that's going to be um, tricky in some ways and it's going to take some growing pain and then we will have games where 
um, other teams will say, and especially in CONCACAF, you know, this is this is a weapon that a lot of teams utilize and just take Davies out of a game. And that's um, something I think that over the next few years, um, the national team coach, whether it's Hertmann or someone else, will have to really focus on. That's a really important point, because if that's the case and we see Alfonso Davies playing at left wing mm -hmm. and stretching the pitch and attacking deep and maybe drawing two or three defenders towards him on that left flank, that only creates so much more space for, for Jonathan David. And, yeah. and isn't that a player that they have to get even more involved in the attack? So I don't know why you would sit on Davies in the back if you can press him up high draw you know have him draw defenders out and then you know allow Jonathan David to find his space because again if we're talking about potent attacking players in CONCACAF Jonathan David has to be up there too so the more space that they can find for him the better yeah and also do you know there is no David Alaba in Canada's national team right there is no and, and you, you're quite right. I mean, the, the discussion that they have on the field, and it's, it's really obvious. And right now we have the luxury to hear what players are saying on the field, right? We can hear what, they, what they're communicating to each other and um, the chats that are going on um, on the field. And it's really quite fascinating to hear that interaction and to hear players giving each other instructions. And we don't have that yet on the Canadian national team. We don't have the player yet that will, that will basically... Um, fill the void left defensively if Davies goes on the attack. And that is that is something really quite important, I think, that, you know, for Canada going forward, that we have to say, okay, look, um, there's, there's a lot of strengths that Davies brings to this to this game. And really, it comes down to just utilizing those strengths. We do not want to necessarily use them in a position that will give us more weaknesses than strengths. And I think playing in left back might do that for Canada. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things, and I'll, I'll give John Herdman credit for this, is at least in some interviews this year, he has seemed to be more open to the possibility of playing uh, Alfonso Davies at forward or or as an out-and-out wingback. You know, I, I think what it's going to come down to really is who they're playing. Uh, I mean, let's face it, I, I think Alfonso Davies' role on this team when you're playing the United States or Mexico or even a team like Costa Rica is probably different than if you're playing another team in CONCACAF. So I, I think you're going to see him play all over the pitch for Canada. And, you know, your point's well made as, as well about Jonathan David. As good as Alfonso Davies is, there has to be somebody else out there uh, along with him. And I, I think that, you know, for that reason, honestly, guys, this year, I'm going to be watching Jonathan David's development, maybe even more than Alfonso Davies development. I think I know what Alfonso Davies is. And I'm still, I'm still kind of waiting to see from Jonathan David. Well, David, um, now up to two goals with Lille. I think it's, you know, there's there's a lot there. It's it hasn't been a, a perfect fit from the starts. He seems to be getting more comfortable, more involved with each passing game. But you know, let's let's stick on Canada soccer. You know, this is, I, I mean, from a men's national perspective, anytime you're you're going into a World Cup qualifying year, it's huge. Uh, but yeah, starting in March, you have the group against Suriname, Bermuda, Cayman Islands, Aruba. Uh, you know, Davies and David. Um, they are the stars of this team. Can they alone carry Canada to a, a World Cup qualification? Jeff? Uh, no. I mean, I don't want to don't want to be that flip about it. I they're great. They're the best offensive players we've had. But I tend to agree with Manuel. I who's going to be that midfield? You know, who's going to be that guy? Who's going to be the general? Uh, I know that that sounds in a day and age of tactics kind of trite, but I, I do wonder about that. Like, who is who's the guy that kind of holds it all together? And, and you know, let's let's be clear. One of the reasons Alfonso Davies sort of has the freedom of the pitch with Bayern. One, he's incredibly fast and he can make up for mistakes, but he's surrounded by really good players. And that's, and especially in the midfield, that's not going to be the case with Canada. It really isn't. Josh, what's John Herdman's biggest worry right now going into this qualification year? Oof. Um, it's just how he can keep these players kind of focused and healthy through an exceedingly long qualification round, right? Like this is, 
you've got the the four games in that first group round uh, and then you have to go to the second group round and, and play those two games within three days in June and then if all goes well then you're in that third round against the heavy hitters you know Mexico United States and then you have to play a ton of games there too so this isn't a straight line for John mm-hmm. Herdman so it's how do I keep everyone healthy how do I manage them with club schedules, really intense club schedules for some of the better players, the Davies and the David, you know, the likes of those players that we're talking about. And then how do I make sure I also find enough time to integrate some of these young players that probably aren't getting as much time with their club teams, but can offer me something dynamic off the bench as well, right? So if we, you know, if if Canada had, you know, gotten a few more bounces and, and maybe you know, one in that second game against the United States and they go straight to the third round if they were that lucky to get that deep, then we're having a completely different conversation. But this is a long grinding haul, you know, and these are kind of, it's a lot of travel. It's, it's, it's not going to be easy for him. So it's, it's about keeping his players kind of focused on the big, big picture and saying, look, yeah, we, we feel we're a very good and talented team. Right. But let's stay focused for an entire 90 minutes against, you know, Bermuda, for example, because, you know, a a little bit of a slip in terms of a, you know, mental focus. And, you know, because this team has to win Group B to get through. And yes, it looks like they should. Right. But nothing is kind of a given when it comes to these international tournaments. So just keeping them focused on the big picture, that's not going to be easy for Herdman. No, and you know, I, I I think back to the 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 last Gold Cup and the the way they blew it against Haiti. Oh, um, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> and, and and just like so many years of of tough losses for for Canadian soccer, and so you know, every little bit of hope is is comes with with some level of tempered expectations. But this is this is kind of the the pressure that's that's put on Davies here you know he just won the Lou Marsh the first men's Canadian player uh, soccer player to to do that um, but at the same time you know he doesn't have the same cachet as other Canadian athletes because I don't think most of Canada is going to stand up and take notice of Davies until he does it in the red and white of a Canadian jersey and, and potentially brings Canada back to the World Cup for the first time since 1986 Manuel. Yeah, you know my opinion on the most recognized Canadian athlete anywhere in the world but Canada, and (laughs) I stick to this. Um, Maybe that's my multinational outlook, my background and all that, and having lived around the world, but that's just how I feel about it. And and you're quite right. I think he has he has to do it with the national team, and I think that's maybe also a fair assessment as well that, you know, to do to be recognized in this country, doing it for a club team halfway across the world is maybe just not enough, right? He has to do it for Canada. He has to have that Mario Lemieux Olympic moment that, you know, if he has to have that at a World Cup. And I think that would change the perspective that we not just have on Davies in this country, but also on the sport. Because if Canada is at a World Cup, and I mean, we're not gonna, I'm not going to say we're going to be very, very competitive at a World Cup, but just being there would be such a huge achievement for this country right and i think that's really important and i think this world cup cycle there was a lot of opportunities lost to maybe get already at a tour world cup in 2022 right um josh mentioned that that game in the united states um where a draw would have been enough to get us deep into the qualification rounds right um, we sort of been given a second chance with this with this redrawn qualification concept that CONCACAF has come up. And I think it's it's pretty important for Canada to get to a World Cup. And I think personally, the sooner the better, like, because I don't know if we can wait till 2026, right? Because what if there's major injuries to some of the players? What What happens if there is another six years without a World Cup? What happens to some of these players that young players that are deciding between different sports right that can be very important um six years is a long time in soccer so i think getting there as soon as possible is very very important not just for alfonso davies but for the sport in this country you see i i mean i i disagree a little bit in that part of the lou marsh committee if laurent duvernay target hadn't quit to 
go in the front lines. I think Alphonse, well, I know based on the debate, Alfonso Davies wins that award going away. It may have been unanimous. Hmm. So, and, you know, the fact that three of the five finalists were soccer players, Khadija Buchanan and Christine Sinclair as well. I mean, I, I think Davies... I think Davies may be a little more known nationally than we give him credit for, but you are right. You know, Canadian and John Herdman talks about this, right? Mm-hmm. Canadian soccer needs that moment. I mean, we, yeah. the men's team, I should say, pardon me. The men's team needs that moment that is going to be flashed around the country. It's going to lead the national news. It's going to lead all the local sports casts. That's, that's the thing that's the thing that's really missing. And, but mm-hmm. I just, Alfonso Davies gives me so much hope because yeah. a, a kid who goes, comes to Edmonton and plays soccer, you know, I'm 60. I remember when the only place that played soccer in Canada were Van, either in Vancouver or in Southern Ontario. I grew up in Winnipeg and nobody in Winnipeg was, I mean, we had a senior men's league that was well-established, but nobody mm-hmm. ever thought they'd be going to the national team. So I, I think Alfonso Davies is, I wouldn't underestimate the the impact he's already had in this country. I, I really wouldn't. But, you know, you're right. Um, ultimately, it's the same thing if you talk to Canadian basketball players. You need that moment in the Maple Leaf jersey, right? Yeah, and that's, absolutely. You need that moment. And I, I think we're close to that moment. And it just look, Jeff, look at how the impact that the women's team had on mm-hmm. the sport in this country. And we, that shouldn't be underestimated. I think Christy Sinclair is the face of soccer ahead of Davies still in this country because of what she's done with the national Agreed. team yep. uh, in Olympics, at World Cups, right? Hosting the World Cup here. And the men's team is still waiting for that moment. And I think, um, you know, having a man and woman sort of represent i think that would do would do wonders for this game and you're quite right i mean like i don't know how the, what the situation is like in winnipeg at the moment but there is a professional team there now right that didn't used to be yes. the case and um we are already in a moment i think right now where this sport is on the cusp of really doing great things in this country and davies is very much you know he gives us the same kind of hope that sinclair has given us for I mean, how long is it now? 20 years almost, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think it is it is very exciting, but we need that national moment with Davies as well, just we had like we had with Sinclair. Well, I think too, what we need, you know, it, it's it's great that we have Alfonso Davies. It's it kind of like the spark has been lit, right? We're all just kind of waiting for the, the fire to catch. We're, we're waiting for all these different kind of things to kind of fall into place. I think Canada soccer, just as an organization, needs to also understand that they have this really incredible generational, yeah. arguably right now the best men's player in the country's history. I think it's fair to put him in that conversation right now. They have this player at their disposal. Um, and what are they going to do, for lack of a better term, to publicize him? Right. I, I think it's not unfathomable to expect to see, you know, Alfonso Davies face on billboards across the country. I think mm. you're right. Maybe we don't give him enough credit. And maybe we don't give, you know, Joe and Jill Q Canada enough credit for knowing who Alfonso Davies is. But I do think, you know, if Byron has done an incredible job uh, at publicizing him and we know that he's a, among their top players in terms of jersey sales, we need to make sure that Canada soccer gets his face out there. They need to be very clear that he is the face of the country. And it's a small thing, but to me, it's things like, why is it so difficult to buy an Alfonso Davies Canada jersey? And this is a That's small a great point. But That's a we, great point. I was just going to ask that. Yeah. yeah you, you, you literally cannot go to Canada soccer's website and buy an Alfonso Davies jersey. And this is something I've, I've asked Canada soccer about. Yeah. They, they say it's a work in progress, but to me, it's connecting him, like making him more prevalent on their social media channels, figuring out literally how can we associate ourselves with a brand that we've never really had before. And, you know, we talk about growing the game and we talk about connecting him to the, you know, people of Canada. The focus should not be necessarily getting him. And and I agree in theory, Jeff, but it, it shouldn't be about getting him on newscasts. It should be how do we make sure that his TikTok brand, his Instagram brand, how do we make sure that 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 
Canadians know that this guy literally is Canadian and the role that Canada soccer played in helping to develop him because that's how young Canadians are going to say, mm-hmm. wait, wait, if he could do it, I could do it too because it's not about connecting him with, you know, the 50-year-olds across the country. It's about connecting him with the 8, 10, and 12-year-olds across the country who are debating whether or not there's a future for them in soccer. And it's it's just also, maybe sorry to interject there, but also it's not just Davies. It's also Jordan Hotema, right? Yep. I mean, we yep. have a power couple here and mm-hmm. they're doing such an amazing, the two doing such an amazing job branding themselves. I mean, they were recently attacked. Um, you know, there was a racist attack on them on Instagram and the way they handled it was superb, in my brilliant. opinion. It was absolutely brilliant. But that also shows you the social media presence the two of them have and i mean those two will be the faces of of canada soccer um for the women's and men's team going forward as well and that's you know that's such a such a unique thing to have and um yeah i i think there needs to be done so much more by canada soccer to just promote promote everything promote the sport promote the stars that we have uh, whether it be davies whether it be hotema whether it be jonathan david you know all these faces. It just needs. It just need to do a bit better. Uh, it is the kick in the grass year-end roundtable, the first edition. Uh, Dan Richo, Jeff Blair, with uh, Manuel Veth and Joshua Cloak. Uh, I think we could spend uh, the entire show talking about Alfonso Davies. Um, it was his year from an athletic perspective, but also a year unlike any other. How the football world dealt with COVID nineteen. And also a look at the MLS squads around Canada as well. Still to come here on the Kick in the Grass Roundtable along the Sportsnet Radio Network. Twenty twenty, a year like none we've ever seen, and certainly had its effect on the sports world and the football world, of course, not just from the schedule standpoint, still no fans in the stands for the most part. Wonder what the road is ahead. It is a kick in the grass in the year-end roundtable, the first edition. Dan Richo and Jeff Blair with you as always, but also with us, Joshua Cloak of The Athletic and Manuel Veth of Transfer Markets. Um, COVID-19 has, has, affects, has affected everybody, and certainly when it comes to soccer uh, you know the, the the biggest example is is the transfer market over the summer you know, we didn't see world record setting transfer fees as we have in in recent years every time the window seems to open there's something going on uh, we had sagas but most teams other than chelsea i guess decided uh, we're, we're not spending too much uh this year um, how how do we look at you know the effects of covid19 and, and how it's going to change the football world moving forward. Jeff, we'll start with you. Oh, I mean, I think there's two, there's two levels here. Um, the first is obviously economic. And I think much as, even though there has been more soccer played than any other sport right now, I mean, we're in the second, mm-hmm. I guess, we're in the first half of the second soccer pandemic season or something like that. Um, (laughs) much, much as is the case with, with baseball, maybe hockey and the NBA, I don't think we are going to know the economic impact for, I don't know, two, three, maybe even four years down the road. Um, I I just, I, I mean, a lot of depend uh, obviously on how soon fans get back in the stands. Um, I'm. I think there's going to be, even with the vaccine, I think there will be some skepticism about whether or not it's it's safe or whether or not people are comfortable going back, going back into the stand. So I think that'll that'll have a huge impact. And the the other impact, and I'm kind of interested in this. Almost, it, it seems almost silly to see it, but just from a scientific and a physiological point of view, I I know from talking to folks around Major League Baseball and sports science that they are absolutely keenly interested in how soccer finishes this this season in terms of injuries and in terms of uh, you know rest that players need. And, and I think a lot of sports are looking at what soccer is doing overseas as a kind of an experiment, and, and they're going to be paying attention to that. 
Manuel? Yeah, that's such a good point because we actually, you know, at Transfermarkt, we have the ability to to record all of this and um, mm-hmm. we are actually tracking it. Um, I can't give you a result yet because it's, it's match day 11 in the Bundesliga, for example, right? In the Premier League, it's the same. Um, but it is up. <laughs> Injuries are up, Jeff. Um, I, can, I can tell you that much and you see it, right? Because the schedule is um, brutal. It's absolutely brutal. I mean... When you look at Bayern Munich, um, for example, club that we discussed quite a bit already, they are playing something like 52 games in 250 days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a lot of games. And that's for a club that has finished last season in the end of August, basically had three, four weeks off and they went straight back into a new season. And then they're playing in a Monday, uh, sorry, weekend, midweek, weekend rhythm for basically this entire year already and then when they don't play the national teams are playing which is uh, in my opinion i mean we discussed the national team earlier is just a catastrophic decision by fifa uefa and all all the boards around the world to even play national team games at the moment right especially friendlies Uh, yeah friendlies i I mean that's It's it's insanity, but uh, Jeff, it's because these football associations are financially dependent on friendlies. That's how they make a lot of money. And I get that argument, sort of, uh, maybe, because I think the financial damage is actually going to be bigger by playing them long term, right, than not playing them because players are going to get burned out, Um, whether it is through injuries, whether it is through COVID. And some of these players, a lot of these players have conducted got in COVID and the Bundesliga it's about 3.8% of the players already have had COVID um, that's a sizable number right and we don't know what the long-term implications of that are and mixing the players for international friendlies is in my opinion something where you just expose them so much more to the virus it's um, yeah it's, it's 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 going to be very interesting to get those final numbers but I, I can tell you right now injuries are up and it is a bit of a science project. And I mean, it, it's making for very fascinating results, right, around the world. Um, and it makes for exciting results, but it's not good for the athletes. I just, yeah, I just want to jump in quickly, too, because, uh, you know, and I, I was thinking specifically of baseball. You know, one of baseball's yeah. concerns is the fact that they are, you're going to be asking a lot of young players and a lot of veterans to basically double or triple their workload. From yeah. last year and and this is that's why i mean i think i think we're going to see the effects of this three or four years down the road not just in economics but in terms of athletes like when mm. when when cba talks are held i can i can guarantee you that the issue of scheduling load management rosters things of that nature baking in more rest days at least in baseball that's going to be a huge topic of debate and it all i think goes back to COVID 19 and to the to the evidence that is being compiled uh, in, in in soccer. Yeah, yeah the ar- the argument that you know there is just you know hashtag too much football has been around for some time now, and I think we can all agree with that to to some extent. Um, what was interesting to me this year was we saw very high profile names um, become infected with COVID nineteen. You know, mm-hmm. Neymar, Cristiano Ronaldo, but we what we didn't see was players kind of standing up, taking a stand and saying, I, I have to take a break. I, I need to stop. I need to think about myself first and foremost, you know, as a, as a person, as a brand, my long-term viability is going to be hurt by continually playing, 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 especially as we've all kind of touched on fairly, you know, unnecessary, meaningless games. Um, and to me, that's, that's going to be the first big domino to fall is when we see a player of some repute, you know, kind of stand up and say, I'm not playing and here's why. And I think others feel this way. We need to just slow down. But when there's so much money and there's so much at stake and people's brands, like I said, the exposure is just huge for these players on an international stage. Why would they do that? But when that happens, I think we might see a change. Dejan Lovren has has come out with a tweet a few weeks ago saying, like, this is why the results are the way they are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And he's spoken out. So... Well, I, I think Jurgen Klopp, um, you know, has been pretty vocal. We've seen a lot of the Premier League matches uh, managers be pretty vocal, 
And you know, those are the ones we see the most. Obviously, they speak uh, our language here uh, mm. as well, which does does help that factor. But it's interesting you mentioned that, Josh, that players haven't spoken up, and yet we've seen club executives make the push for a European Super League to add more matches to the schedule rather than fewer matches to the schedule. I mean, they, they're feeling a little bit of hurt for the first time in a long time, or they're not making as much money as they're used to making. And here they are concocting ways or looking at this as, a, as an opportunity to you know further their gains moving forward by adding this European Super League, which would essentially take the biggest clubs in Europe and make their domestic leagues kind of, well, less important, that's for sure. Yeah, and and I mean, I'm, I guess, a bit of a, I don't know if traditionalist is the right word, but like, I like, I, I like watching, uh, you know, mid-table Bundesliga games at 9.30 on a Saturday just because I like it. So that's just me personally, and I like kind of turning on, um, you know, the TV and just seeing what's on. And I, I, I think that a European Super League is probably inevitable, though, because, you know, football doesn't care about my feelings and, and doesn't care about a lot of our feelings. It cares about the bottom line. Um, I, I do wonder, again, if, if you are going to see some, you know, some teams or some executives, some purists step up and say, like, this isn't the way that, I don't know, football should be played. But I, if you have this just so, so, so much money, and if what you could do, like, is, is in you know, having this kind of European Super League is just isolate yourself from, you know, from other teams and make sure that, like, if you're one of these super teams, you're thinking the same way as these super clubs. Because I know that, you know, some of these big clubs, they probably get worried about, going and playing matches against, you know, teams kind of at a lower tier or whatever, worrying about injuries, right? Worrying about, you know, conditions. Um, it's an elitism that I think we shouldn't, it, it's inevitable, right? So yeah, I, it wouldn't be surprising if, if this European Super League came a little quicker because of this pandemic, as much as maybe people like me don't want to see it. I, I was going to jump in. There's one other thing I think we need to credit. And I, and I think we need to credit the Bundesliga for if you if you go back to the initial days of the Bundesliga restart and think of everything we thought we knew or suspected about COVID-19. Remember, guys couldn't spit on the pitch. Uh, guys couldn't high five. Nobody was going to tackle anybody because the 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 the. the the virus was going to jump from one guy's foot to another guy's <laughs> leg, and then it was going to end up. But, but I'm serious. I mean, the one thing the Bundesliga showed is there, if you do things properly, there is no on-pitch or on-ice or on-field transmission. And that was something that a lot of people were scared of going into the yeah. start of the Bundesliga. Guys getting sick, going about their business. And – you know, after the first week, I saw guys spitting. I saw guys high-fiving, guys rubbing each other's heads, saw some great tackles. And I think that put a lot of people's mind at rest, too. The fact that, you know what, you can play a match or you can play your sport. Yes, it's going to be in an empty stadium, but players can still kind of go about doing what they're doing and nobody's going to get sick. And it's I think that was huge, a hugely important mental step for, for every sport. I think it's kind of too bad that hasn't arrived the uh, Canada health officials yet, that message. But um, <laughs> <laughs> completely, <Yes. laughs> because I, I'm with you. I mean, there's there's no evidence for transmissions on field. Even when there was positive tested players on the field, players around them playing with them didn't get sick. Um, you know, they got, mm -hmm. they, they got infected in the dressing room. But I, I think um, to go back to the European Super League, um, I know that the meeting, there was a meeting between those clubs in, in Miami um, and the executives of many big clubs were there. And some of the clubs that have actually said that, you know, they had nothing to do with this and they don't want to have anything to do with this. They still went and they still checked it out. But, and this is a big but, the idea of a European Super League has been floating around for such a long time now. And it usually boils down to one thing and one thing only is that the big clubs want to have as much control of the Champions League as possible. And that's what's ultimately going to come down, come down to, right? This European Super League is going to get floated around. The numbers are going to be shown to UEFA. The clubs are going to push hard for it 
But in the end of the day, there will be a compromise with, with the Champions League. And it looks like the Champions League is going to get some sort of reform and essentially turn into uh, some sort of league competition, right? With bigger groups, um, with more group stage games before, before the knockout stage. So I, I am always worried about the European Super League because I'm with Jeff. I, I like turning on the TV at 6.30 in the morning here on the West Coast and uh, watch Bielefeld against Stuttgart. I, I find it interesting. And those clubs are very important for the fabric of, of football. These smaller clubs are where, where players start learning to play at the highest level. It's often where most tactical innovation happens. So these, these games are very important, right, in many ways. And I do think that the big clubs also know this. They know this and while they're trying to protect their own interests and while they are pushing UEFA as hard as possible for as much money as possible, I'm not sure that they would ever be willing to completely destroy the very fabric of the sport. Well, and that's a really important point. And you, you mentioned it like that the cultural fabric that these clubs kind of weave into their own countries is so, so, so important. And, you know, if, if we can just kind of going on a generality here, but if we talk about teams like you know, Man City and, and people call this club a plastic club. And I, mm. I don't mean to insult any Man City fans out there because I know there are a lot of longtime Man City fans who, who might be listening. But that's a, a term that gets thrown a lot, around a lot. It's a term that even gets thrown at Bayern sometimes, you know, when we talk about them compared to some other German clubs. Do If, if you are an executive at these big clubs, do you really want to kind of be tossed out the door in your own backyard just so you know, you kind of raise more eyeballs in in some of the bigger countries around the planet, right? Is that kind of is that a sacrifice you're willing to make? And I think when I was talking about purists earlier, that's kind of what I was talking about, right? Is like maybe maybe some clubs do some research, you know, do some market research and say, you know what, this would actually be really detrimental, mm. uh, and it's it's a cringeworthy word, but really be detrimental to our brand at home to do this for the sake of selling more jerseys around the world, maybe we don't do this. And that's something that I wonder, again, we're talking about dominoes to fall. I wonder if one of those big super clubs does eventually say, you know what, not for us. We, uh, like you said, we want to play Stuttgart at 930 uh, in the morning. It's, um, it's a conversation that won't go away. As Manuel mentioned, you know, this is, uh, this has kind of been a topic I guess since the late 80s is when uh, it mm -hmm. first really started being discussed. Um, it, it's all about what they are pushing for and how they make uh, a little bit more money. But as we're seeing right now, and you guys mentioned it, um, the schedule and where it's at right now, the amount of games, um, you're, you're going to burn these players out. And we'll see. This theory is really going to be put to the test in the first part of twenty. 21. When we come back, a quick thought on uh, the Canadian MLS teams. End of an era for Toronto FC, and are Vancouver and Montreal headed in any direction? The right direction? We'll discuss next on A Kick in the Grass across the Sportsnet Radio Network. The Columbus Crew are your 2020 MLS Cup champions. Uh, Tim Bezbachenko, former Toronto FC GM doing it uh, for a second time over the last couple of years. It's uh, the Kick in the Grass Roundtable. Dan Richo, Jeff Blair with Joshua Cloak of The Athletic and Manuel Veth of Transfer Markets. Um, TFC moving on from Greg Vanny or Greg Vanny moving on from TFC. Uh, Josh, I know you've you've written about TFC for a lot of years. You have a book about them uh, and it's and the growth of this club over the last few years. Greg Vanny to TFC. How are how is the club going to move on given their managerial track record before him? Well, it's not going to be easy because to me, Greg Vanny should be on the Mount Rushmore of, of TFC, right? This is, I, I would argue, very few people are as instrumental to this club's success as, as Greg Vanny. Um, so there's, there's really, really big shoes to fill. Greg Vanny did an incredible job of earning the trust of, you know, almost everyone in that organization, right? So you're going, if you're, if you're Bill Manning and you're Ali Curtis, you're going to have to find someone. Um, that can, you know, can earn the trust of these players that they have, and also kind of command a lot of the very big egos in the room 
right now. And I think for me, that's one of, there's a number of questions following TFC and arguably their most interesting offseason in years. Um, that's going to be a big one because if you look at the big names in this club right now, Michael Bradley, Josie Altador, um, these are players that should probably be focused to more of a kind of a, a bench support role, right? And that's a lot of money to be playing, paying these players, but their experience is important. Can you find a manager who is comfortable making those kind of moves and, and getting those players to take kind of a, a secondary role at times because they, they just have lost a step um, and they're not alone, right? This is a veteran heavy team. So that's a big one that I'm looking for. Are you going to find a big enough name that can kind of corral those big egos? And what's, you know, who, who is this this name going to be? I know there's a lot of names, a lot of people that they're looking at. It's still relatively early, um, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see where they go next. Because again, this is very much Ali Curtis's team now. He's kind of the visionary for this club and it'll be interesting to see what happens next. As long as they keep Jurgen Klinsmann away from <laughs> from things, I, I still remember that news conference in, where he talked about he wanted to create an organic sort of Canadian soccer thing, and I think he used the word thing. And uh, I, I never really did, never really did understand that. Look, I think there's two ways they can go here, and I think you know Josh is reporting on it. Um, you know, Ben Olson, you, you get a guy with an MLS track record, you get a guy who understands what it means to manage MLS. We all know it's a different league with different demands, even in the most normal of times, right? Mm -hmm. Let alone coming out of COVID-19. Or you go for a complete total cultural reset. And for me, now, it, it purely from a, I want to stand back and see if the train stays in the tracks or not point of view, I would like to see Laurent Blanc. But that's just purely, the, that's sort of the chaos agent in me. Um, I, I think it would be an interesting, it would certainly be a culture, a cultural reset. And I mean, one thing about Laurent Blanc and one thing about national team, you know, guys who have experience coaching national teams, they're used to sort of, having to very gently tell players that they're getting a little old and they're used to very gently telling guys that, you know, maybe 60 minutes tonight for you, not, not 90. So I, I think you do need somebody though, who comes in and commands respect, but I just, you know, don't go for the big name. Like my, my fear is that it'll be Patrick Vieira because he's Patrick Vieira. And I would rather not, I would rather not go in that direction. That's, but that's just a personal thing. Well, and, and we've seen with Montreal, you know, Thierry Henry um, certainly has mixed reviews for his abilities as as a manager, but it did bring some eyeballs, at least, to, to, to the Montreal impact and did raise their profile. You kind of wanted to tune in just to see what Thierry Henry was all about. As for the Whitecaps, Manuel, I mean, we cover them here out on the Pacific uh, <laughs> North, in the Pacific Northwest. We try. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I... It's impossible to not sound rude about the club, but this this year essentially they they hardly existed. It felt like it was just they played matches, but did anybody pay attention to what was going on with the Whitecaps this year? Well, they're not exactly inspiring people to pay attention, do they? Um, you know, you see, this was probably the most competitive MLS playoffs that I have ever seen. the The level of football was. A time extraordinary, you know, mm -hmm. it's the kind of level of football that you see in some of the bigger European leagues. And the Whitecaps are as far removed from that um, as, as, as Earth is from the moon. It's, um, you know, it's a completely <laughs> different, it's a completely different world. It's, there is so much just missing in terms of um, the infrastructure, the club, the, the players on the field. You know, they're just, they're basically essentially scraping by at the moment. And that's not inspiring and it's not inspiring for a very active fan base one of you know the most active traditional fan bases here in north america and um it's kind of really too bad just too bad to see it and i don't even know how how to fix it all right i mean i personally i would just basically go and take a bunch of money and sign a sign a number <laughs> 10. Um, mm. that's the first thing I would do because that seems to be what everyone else has been doing around the league, you know, find a really good influential number 10 because every single team that's done very well and been competitive in these playoffs had that number 10. So that's the first thing I would do. 
And then I would reorganize everything at the club. You know, if I was a new owner coming in, I would reorganize everything at the club. And um, But I don't think there is an appetite for that with the current ownership. Yeah, and you know what, you, you, you kind of touched on this. You're not sure where to go. Like to me, it's it's if we watched MLS Cup on the weekend, watching Lucas Elrayon play, yeah. like to me, this is a two-foot putt. Spend, spend, yeah. spend, spend. Like at some point, it's so strange with me, you know, and I think it applies to to the Impact or F Montreal or FC or whatever we're calling them right now. Um, uh, I, like, I like Montreal FC. I'm one of those guys. Uh, but – Look, spend. Yeah. Spend the money because literally that is what makes a difference in MLS. If you spend on your big name players, they will win you matches and nothing brings fans in and keeps fans interested like winning, right? MLS is a league where there's still a lot of parity, right? And mm. there's still a ton of stars around the world that have been proven They're keen to come and play in North America. But if you don't get on board with that and you don't show your fans that you are willing to invest just as the way that they have emotionally invested, yeah. right, then you will lose and you will be left behind. And I think the Whitecaps, more than any other team in MLS, needs to learn that right now is that there is a passionate fan base, there is a stadium. Right, you you have a market share that a lot of like like Toronto Toronto FC for example is up against other huge teams the Raptors the Leafs the Jays you have such a bigger market share and you have to just spend big and you have to take a swing because as we've seen again we keep coming back to Toronto FC but as we've seen Defoe didn't necessarily work out but people got interested fans yeah. said thank yeah. you for thank you for believing in us and thank you for believing in that. They need that kind of Tim Laiwiki esque swinging, right? And it, yeah. So to, to, to yeah. me, that's that's the easiest thing to do, and I know it's not necessarily easy because it's not my money that they're spending, <laughs> but this is money to me that that goes a very long way. And we don't, we literally have to look at the MLS Cup final to see yeah. how much spending on a single big player can make. Look at the Sounders, just down, you know, 200 kilometers down for, down south. This is a club that entered the league around the same time than the Whitecaps, has the same kind of history than the Whitecaps, and they're, they're miles away now, right, in terms of development. And I look at MLS, and, you know, I'm in charge of setting market values for Major League Soccer, and right now we have a hard time keeping up because this is the fastest growing, fastest developing league in the world. And if you feel clubs that are standing still are falling behind, but if you're going backwards like the Whitecaps have, you are falling behind very, very fast. And you cannot simply not afford that right now in Major League Soccer. Well, and it, I was going to say, Danny, I was just going to say it's a mystery to me because that should be, and I think I echo what everybody said here, that should be one of, if not the best markets for MLS, yeah. not just because mm -hmm. of the fan base, the stadium, the culture. But my goodness, if, if you were a, I don't know, if you were a 27-year-old, 28-year-old player coming from overseas, good player you want a you know lifestyle change or whatever why wouldn't you entertain vancouver like it, of, this is because of the people in charge <laughs> yeah no I, I, exactly but what i'm saying is if you had people who are willing to spend i mean josh you know how, how hard a case is it if you had people who are willing to spend come to vancouver yeah. it's not it's it look you know what when i talk to people uh, uh, that, that came like victor vasquez to me is a prime example Right. And I talked to Victor Vasquez when he came. I said, what, like, what's your reasoning for coming here? You could have played in, you know, probably other mid-tier markets or uh, leagues in Europe. He said, I wanted to come to a place that I was safe and clean and good yeah. for my family. Go yeah. after, go after people with families, you know, players with families, go after and sell Vancouver the way that you sell it to any other person in North America. It's the mm. most beautiful city in North America. You get to live there. You get to play there. Yeah. It's, I, it's, it, I lived there for three years, and I felt you know, this kind of invigorated sense of purpose that I think a lot of people, when they first move to Vancouver, feel because it is this great, beautiful city, and it doesn't seem to be that hard. The Whitecaps seem to be just kind of 
dragging their feet with this new signing that we hear about, right? And and I get it, it's hard, it's COVID, but you know, I, the more and more I talk about it, it doesn't seem that hard. Well, well I always hey, say, there's, I always there's a great say DP, there's a great DP here, it's just he's a left back. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting that you say all these things because I always compare Vancouver with Munich. And, um, you know, Munich is where I w was born and I uh, grew up and it, it feels very much the same way. And, and look what Bayern Munich have done with the environment that they're in, in, in Munich. And the Whitecaps have not utilized the same kind mm. of environment at all. And that's just that just baffles my mind. And when I, you talk to people within the organization, you point that out to them. It's like, well, it's because of this and maybe no corporate money and, you know, and they can't really explain it to you. That's that's the thing. They like they, yeah. they, they muffle around the issue, but it, it just baffles my mind because the Canucks are doing it right. Yeah, so it's very disappointing to say the least. I'll, I'll, having covered uh, Toronto FC and now covering uh, the Whitecaps, I'll, it's it's disappointing the way that um, the, the Whitecaps have um utilize this market or taken advantage of this uh this market that is just yearning uh for a little bit of excitement around the soccer fields um this has been a pleasure gentlemen uh, i think it's been uh, it's been great uh we really appreciated the first edition of the kick in the grass round table uh for the year end of 2020 joshua cloak you can find him on twitter by his name find his work at the athletic and author of come on you reds the story of toronto fc also manuel veth follow him by his name on twitter as well and check out his work at transfer market us and bundesliga coverage for forbes as well Jeff Blair and Dan Riccio will be back in the new year as a kick in the grass will take you through 2021 as well here along the Sportsnet Radio Network.